Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scene Partners. I like that you found something that you liked and you stuck with it the whole time. That's good. That's that was like even better than a yes and moment. That was like a yes, I'll continue. I was gonna follow your lead. (laughs) That's always good. Um, hey, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, Oh my gosh. I uh you know when this airs, we'll have already come back from vacation. Yeah, you almost, you almost, you almost lied. You I did. almost lied I, to I the did. people. You were like, "Oh, <laughs> you had a great vacation. <laughs> it was gotten out. We're all back. We had a great vacation." I was like, "Red, no." You saw it all over my face. But you know, full transparency, <laughs> because we won't have time when we, you know, first come back to record. So we're kind of like double recording a little bit. We are. But hey, that's okay. You can pretend like you had a great. We'll just put it out in the universe. Wow, that vacation was. Horrible, amazing, horror, amazing, horror, amazing. <laughs> it was the yeah, maybe not. You know what is crazy? Um, completely unrelated to. I never ask you how you're doing, and that's okay. I'm gonna not ask you again. It's but all right. We, I talk enough about <laughs> me. People know how I'm doing based yeah. off of the last <laughs> five minutes of ten every- to fifth, <laughs> ten to five. It's really the last ten to five of every episode wherever I'm like. This is what I've been thinking about this entire time. Is my soapbox. I just feel like if you've stuck with the episode that long, then you deserve a little prize. Then you've got gossip. to like you've got to in some way be on our team. Yes. So it's okay <laughs> that you hear me say these things. We're we're now the anti heroes, the Walter Whites of <laughs> the podcast by yeah. that time. Um no, we're we're going to this place and there's this Airbnb and it has so many rules and stipulations for being in there. Like uh-huh. you had to be registered and you had to be like attached to the agreement and everything. And just there's a part of me that understands it in a little way because it's like, well, one, I've done this when like I Airbnb my apartment whenever I was in Chicago and I was doing uh, a show in Wisconsin mm-hmm. and there. Oh, man, there were a lot of times I was like, I wish we would have had more rules. But also, like, you know, the more rules that you have, the you're probably going to alienate some people that are like, man, that's a little bit too intense. Yeah. Luckily, I hadn't read any of these rules before we actually were like, let's do it. And then I read the rules. I'm like, my, actually, I still haven't read the rules. I've just heard you talk about it. <laughs> it. It is crazy because it makes me kind of think because you had told some of your horror stories to renting out your apartment there. Mm-hmm. And I thought. Yeah, they probably searched for someone who was fresh, brand new, didn't have a lot of rules, and didn't know yeah, and to have a lot know. of rules. Well, it was also earlier on in the Airbnb thing, so I'm sure that they oh, have yeah, that's true, yeah. figured out a little bit more about how to do this and what works and doesn't work. Because whenever I did it, it was, I mean, it was really new. Because I remember telling, like, you know, talking to my parents about it. And I was like, yeah, I'm getting the, we have to get all this stuff ready for, we're going to Airbnb our apartment. They were like, what is Airbnb? It's like, oh, you old people. (laughs) You don't know. (laughs) But nobody really knew very much about what it was. But my gosh, I feel so bad. I felt so bad for, you know, luckily we had a really uh, great friend that would go and, like clean our apartment for us while we were gone that didn't live too far away so we would just like 
we had the the Airbnb guest pay a cleaning fee, if I'm remembering this right. Mm-hmm. And then we just like added a couple of like maybe like 50 extra bucks to that. And we would pay her to go over there and like clean it because we weren't there. We yeah. was in Wisconsin um, and she would get stuff ready. But really the sadness of those people that of the horror stories that came from there, that was that would be more of a conversation for you to have with Tori. <laughs> not with me because right. I got the photos and then I had to later go back and live in the apartment, but she had to actually dispose of the goods, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So anyways, um, hi. So I was, uh, I don't have to do this voice. Um, yeah, let's do the voice. Mike Wazowski. <laughs> was that it? It's, it sounded like a little bit like Mike Wazowski. Did it? A little bit, like you were doing a little Billy Crystal-y type oh, of... Oh, man. Well, cool. Um, I love Billy Crystal. As you should. He's amazing. He's, He's an amazing. American treasure. He is a treasure. His one-man show that he did on Broadway about his parents, oh, my gosh. Have you ever seen that? No, I have not. Oh, my God. It's like a stand-up comedy routine, but it's theater. Yeah. Um, I had never seen anything like this before. It was a one-man show. It's just all about... I can't remember what the title of it is, um, but it is so, so good. You have to look it up on YouTube. It is, um, it is gotta be one of the most heartbreaking stories ever. He just like talks about, he goes through like the, him, you know, learning about comedy and everything. And then, um, starting to do stand up as a younger person. Mm -hmm. And then the journey of his parents and like, the death of his father and then later on his mother and just some other things. And I mean, I feel like I laughed a whole bunch in this, but it just ripped my heart out. Yeah. He just was so, so good. He's just such a cool person. You know, speaking of one man shows, my, um, my buddy Tucker did a one man show, uh, a couple years ago mm-hmm. and he had flown down and he had asked me to sit down with him and kind of workshop it and take some notes and everything. And at the time, I'm watching him do this, and it was so close to freaking word perfect. I thought, that's insane. I don't know how you did an 80-page script that close. Yeah. But it was so interesting to me because I've always thought, you know, something like that would be too daunting. But basically, you're just telling a story for 90 yeah, minutes. Yeah, you're telling a story. And, it, and, it, and same thing. Like, it was very funny in parts, but, you know, also heartbreaking in others. And it I was do crazy like to the format of a one man show. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. You, I, but, but yeah, it's this thing where you're completely in control. You don't have to mm-hmm. worry about anybody else like flubbing up on their lines or thinking yeah. on the fly. And you know where the story goes. And the audience, like, I feel like whenever you're all alone out there, I guess this is the way it is whenever you're, you know, in a two man show, it's like this too. It's just kind of like, it's not that the audience for is forgiving because of the situation it's it's more or less like you have such a a closer relationship with Mm -hmm. them because most of the time you're talking directly to them yeah because there's nobody else to talk to it's they're they're the ones in the room and so i feel like you just you get this really cool intimate relationship with your audience that you don't normally get when there's so much going on yeah so i do like that and i also feel like that I think the audience gets a little bit more out of it because they have to listen. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there, there's one focal point. And yeah. so I think that that's also really cool. And you're not having to buy into other energy. Like even with, you know, when we did Tuna, you're not buying into other energies that aren't 
that are like these these third forces coming in to yeah. to disrupt in some way. And I think in that way, it's also the audience is on your side too, when they they recognize the the sort of tricks that you're trying to pull off, mm-hmm. and they buy into it, and, and and it's just crazy to see how because I because after, they know that you're only one person. Yes, and after watching him do it, I thought I don't know if I ever want to be in not an ensemble show. And then the first thing that you would pitch to me when you started <laughs> this was like, "Hey, can we do a two man show?" And I was like, mm. "You're like, okay. mm. but after doing after doing tuna." I, I'm not as intimidated about potentially doing a one-man show. Yeah. There is a one-man show that I've always wanted to do called I Am My Own Wife. And it is, um, I can't remember the guy who wrote it, but it is a, it's based off of a true story about a, um, about someone in Berlin. And they play like this one person. Actually, it's a little different than like what Billy Crystal's uh, show was and I'm not really sure what Tucker's was but um, where he the the performer plays a whole bunch of different characters mm. but it's interesting it's about a um, it's about a a man who runs a like a kind of a hotel or like a and b of sorts and he plays the characters of the guests and it's all during like the wartime in, in Berlin and he's he's also a transvestite and mm. it's just like it's very interesting layered show yeah i think i don't know i have it somewhere you can read it but it is it i've always i've always kind of wanted to do it because i feel like it would be such a challenge not to and i'm not saying i want to do it because i want to perform in it i want to direct it yeah i just feel like you know, I also think that would be interesting, and maybe this is just where I'm at in my life now. Now I'm like, I don't want to act in the one person. You know, I don't want to yeah. act in that. I want to direct someone else <laughs> <laughs> to do it. Yeah. But I want to direct somebody in that way of, of it. I just feel like that it would be so nice as a director because you're just focused, just like what we were talking about with mm-hmm. the audience, on this one person. But man, I would almost, I don't know, an actor probably wouldn't want to work with me on that considering <laughs> I get kind of intense sometimes, but the, you know, it is, it is funny that you said about him doing the voices of the different characters, because it was the same thing like with Tucker. And when he would have interactions with other, like his main character was basically telling his life story mm-hmm. and he would have these interactions with other people. And it's kind of like listening to an audiobook. And that you have to give them these other voices yeah. so that we as the audience can recognize, oh, this is uh, his sister or this is his yeah, father or this is, you know, whoever. And, you know, there's, there's one line from that particular thing that I found so stirring and moving. And it was um, all about grief and how we deal with it. And he said, you know, grief is like a flame. It's never, you know, always to a tin it's never like always this blazing wildfire mm-hmm. sometimes it's just embers but it's always burning yeah it's always there and i was like dude that is exactly true that is so good i don't know who wrote uh, you know i'd have to ask him you know what the piece was but i i really yeah i think that would be such a cool thing to just go watch people do these one man shows to see how they navigate yeah well and then also in a way that still keeps it interesting. Mm-hmm. Like there's a uh, one woman show on, I think it's, 
on Amazon Prime or HBO. I can't remember. It's it's actually this woman's. It's about this woman's love of the Constitution, mm. and I cannot remember the name of this. And that's the first thing that popped into my head after I said the thing about Billy Crystal. But, um, and it's just about her relationship with the Constitution and how much she loves it, and basically like talks about America and how whenever she was really young is whenever this all started with the, like she entered in some kind of competition where they had to memorize parts of the constitution or something. And um, she like memorized the whole thing, but she, she just talks a lot about it. And yeah. She goes back and forth through time. And it's just really cool. But I do like the one man show thing. Ian McKellen had a one man show about Shakespeare, about him doing Shakespeare. Mm think patrick stewart has also done the same thing and like alan cummings did a one-man macbeth see that would be awesome i think he's so underrated as an actor oh my gosh he is insane i think he's i think he's very i think he's like a prized possession for everybody in the theater community i don't know what he yeah as far as like you know uh people in the world outside of live performance how they feel about him but oh my gosh he is just so amazing him him and in cabaret it's like the best mm. the yeah oh best, yeah yeah best. yeah you were showing me that you know i think that he kind of has the same relationship that i think you and i probably have to film mm-hmm. in that it's a means to an end yeah you, you see it and it's like dude this takes all like it, it takes days to shoot you know three pages of dialogue and i can go do this you know hour and a half show and it's mm-hmm. 90 pages come on yeah like why would you go back it's like uh, Bill Nye talks about that. He's like, is it really worth it? Like, it's just a lot of work. Yeah. To, well, but his his thing was, he's older now and cranky. So his thing was like, is it worth it to do a play? It's so much work to do a play. I can just go on set. Somebody will bring me <laughs> yeah. what I want. I'll get my coffee delivered. Somebody will bring me a pastry. I can just sit there, enjoy myself. I'll go out and say a couple of lines that I memorized like two days before. And I'm good. And then I get a big old check. <laughs> you know, it. the first time I was ever on a movie set, um, it was so funny watching the main characters have like the paper of their sides for the day mm-hmm. in their pockets. And they were just kind of looking over them and then they would shoot the two or three lines of dialogue and then the camera would move and then they'd read over that. And, and they were kind of like learning them on the fly. And I thought... They're, and they're, every other supporting role and like extra or any anybody that was beneath that was so memorized for what yes. they had to do like like compulsively so like yeah they, no one else had their sides no one else had paper they were prepared they knew all of their choices they knew exactly what faces they were going mm-hmm. to make for the camera it was just so strange to me it's like where did that when did the people that are getting paid the most to be here start doing the least amount of work yes I don't know. We've had that conversation before about, you know, like actually putting in the work and being a lazy performer. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't understand the laziness of it. Yeah. But having having uh, film actors always talk about, man, I had three pages of dialogue for this audition. Yeah. Did you? <laughs> really? OK. You'll be all right. I just I don't I don't know. And I, you know, what? I think it's also one of the reasons why I didn't necessarily like film is that also i i never really like i mean with the exception of like one time enjoyed the cast and the crew 
<laughs> it was yes. just not like a place that it just all seemed, I don't know, it just did not seem like a very happy place to be. It was kind of like everybody was at each other's throats the whole time mm-hmm. in a sense of like i'm more important than you no uh, no the lighting is more important than you no yeah. the cinematographer is more important than you well i'm the most important no you're not you're just an actor <laughs> like the whole time i was like this is ridiculous like everybody's vying for their like 100 percent control i guess i don't know yeah no watching the boom mic operators talk about like how badly everything is going all the time is so funny. They'll pull down the boom mic and they're like, this is going so badly. We need to go ahead and just move on. Let's, let's just get this. <laughs> yeah. But you know, that, that I was listening to this uh, podcast with Quentin Tarantino because he's got that new book about um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood coming out. And he was talking about how he's like... He's got a book that's the same title as the movie? Yeah, he made a novelization of his film. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and he was talking about... One of the things that he likes to do is he tries to make his sets so much different from everybody else's. He's like, I want people to walk off my set and to hate their next job. Interesting. He's like, I want them to have had such a good experience and so much fun. And that even though you might be working long and hard hours, that it was enjoyment to the 10th degree, like. Well, it is one way that you can convince people to actually work those long and yes. hard hours. Is it because well, you're also fun. working on a Tarantino film. So, you know, it's yeah. going to be something that's kind of like this crazy, big, high concept, art housey type of like thing. Weird situation. Yeah. Here's a here's a hundred thousand dollar film that looks like it was shot for two million dollars. Yeah. And a lot of fake blood. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's where most of his budget goes. I, I said a hundred thousand. I'm at a hundred million. Yeah. I do think, uh, you know, having a good environment is is worth everything. Mm-hmm. It's it's like, um, you know, David, who I talk about a bunch, he would always have food at every single rehearsal, and it was a big thing. Like he was, he always wanted snacks. They wanted food to be everywhere all the time. Yeah, he was like, you know what? If you feed people, it is the easiest way to show them that they are important to you. And they will pretty much do anything. So, do you give an actor a banana and <laughs> some granola? <laughs> Dance monkey. <laughs> yeah, I should I shouldn't have said banana like right off the bat. I was just totally <laughs> setting myself up for this awfulness. Not banana. Um, you just give your you give somebody like a snack or like a little bit of food that doesn't cost a whole bunch of money, mm-hmm. but it just like is just putting forth just a little bit more effort. Yeah. People see that and then they're immediately like, oh, this is, you know what? I'm I'm doing fine. Yeah. I'm fine. Also, just like, you know, a little snack never hurt anybody. Exactly. And well, that's that's kind of the thing. You want people to to know that their time is appreciated. Mm-hmm. And especially in a community. I mean, like, and, and that might be a little different if you're getting paid, then okay, then you have to put in the work. But in the community setting, you know, to show people that, oh, you put in the effort, you put in the time and you're here at the rehearsals. Yeah. I want to show that I appreciate that you came out and showed up to to be a part of this show, to tell this story with us. Which is why I have that bowl of cocaine. <laughs> oh, yes. At every rehearsal. Yep. <laughs> Got nowhere to go. You didn't have anywhere to go for that. <laughs> You're like, if I play into this joke, then some people are going to think it's real. No, no, no. I no, think as if we were making afford enough a bowl of money. cocaine. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> as if we were making enough money. You're like, man, they're doing really good. 
talks about doing children shows all the time. He's giving those children's <laughs> cocaine. Uh, this so is just funny. crushed up Smarties kid. That's fine. You're doing great. Who was it that that was Audra McDonald and Porgy and Best when she was doing the the world tour of this show? Um, her character in Porgy and Best has to do like a line of coke, and she was doing sugar, and because she also is like this crazy singer. But so she was having to like do this fake line of coke on stage, and then I feel like, like the sugar was too harsh. So then they started doing Smarties. Mm-hmm. They were like crushing up Smarties, but then she was getting like these crazy sugar rushes. Yeah, <laughs> she's like, we gotta find something else. <laughs> I can't. But now I'm telling the story. I can't remember what they settled on for her because she was just like doing so many of these shows. She was just constantly snorting Smarties yeah. all the time. It also, you have to make sure they're fully crushed up. You can get the chunks in there. Oh, it's yeah. like awful. You know that it had to have happened to her a couple times. Oh, yeah. I'm Even sure she also you're... like blew her nose and it was like the colors of the rainbow. <laughs> Pastel colors. I wonder if, I know this is complete tangent, but I wonder if like people that worked with Charlie Sheen, if they ever thought about giving him fake cocaine to have the placebo effect. He would probably know immediately. <laughs> yes. He would have known immediately. I mean, I'm assuming that he's still around. He is alive. Doesn't. I mean, he's just like got all the diseases mm-hmm. and all the drugs, right? Yes. I mean, that's just, that's wild. Like when he fell off the bandwagon, he fell pretty hard. But it was one of the best marketing things that the show he was on at the time had. Can you fall off the bandwagon or do you just fall yeah, off the wagon? Because he was sober for several years. I think you just fall off the wagon. You join the bandwagon. You jump onto the bandwagon. Look, I'm allowed to say something stupid off. every now I'm and just, then. I'm just talking about it. I'm just saying it. I'm just throwing it out there. You know, we've talked about how we want people to talk about us whenever we're like, you know, to tell us. Yes, hold up a mirror to me. Yes, that's what I'm saying. (laughs) So this is this is your mirror. He fell off the wagon. There it um, is. After joining the uh, sober bandwagon. Joining the bandwagon. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. Um, but I do think that it's uh, the environment that you put forth for people in any sort of work environment mm-hmm. is massive. And I just, I mean, I, I hope that whenever people do our shows that they actually enjoyed being in the rehearsal room and it's not like a, a stressful, terrible environment. I do wish that, you know, of course, you always wish that you could do more. But that I, I, that is one of the things that I took from David was always, always have some sort of snack mm-hmm. or something for people. So we've, so we have basically arrived at the point where um, like we, like I just did this play at the Fox and then we're thinking about already about, you know, Mockingbird. And then after that we have immediately another show and then immediately another show. Yes. So I feel like within a very short amount of time, we are just like, whole like just totally back to the point where we are constantly thinking about what comes next yeah taking the baton and sprinting yes exactly it's like all right i'm making it to here i'm making it to here i'm making it to here this is what's coming next and next and next and you know we were talking the other day with some of our friends about um some shows that we want to do Mm -hmm. and making sure that they were you know like is this something that you'd be interested in because this one particular show that I know I really want to do, I have to have these two people do it. I have yeah. to have these two people in it. And um, so I was trying to figure out that information, but it did just get me thinking about 
how it's so easy. I, and I find that communities do this quite often in the arts about they talk about like they throw out things that they want to do, but know that they're not going to do. Yeah. In an almost effort to get someone excited and then like maybe they'll do this other thing that we know we need them for because they think we're going to do this other thing, but we're not actually going to be able to do that thing. Yeah. It's just something that we would like to do. But it just, it just kind of got me thinking about that. This is absolutely not really a conversation necessarily. This is just the fact of I was thinking about that and just kind of like how crummy it is. <laughs> No, you know, I really hate when people do the all talk thing. And many of my friends kind of do that when they're like, oh, I want to do this or I want to do that or I want to do this. And then they never end up doing any of it. And they'll get me excited about being a part of something or doing something. And then you just kind of have to like file that away under, oh, that's never going to happen. Right. And there was a small part of me that thought when you were talking about doing tuna with me, I was like, well, you know, obviously he wouldn't do a two man show to start off his whole like play on career there what do you mean obviously well i just assumed that you would want to do something that had more people in it to get everyone kind of excited and to bring things in but i was also like really honored that you ended up deciding to do that so in in that regard i think you are the outlier to many of my friends that talk about getting excited and doing things and just like with me and christian you know writing plays together yeah i like being called the outlier Maybe that'll be my um, Showtime show. Yeah. The Outlier. The Outlier. Instead of Outlander. It's just me doing things (laughs) on the outskirts (laughs) of other people that are also doing things, but doing it a little different. Cody uses a push mower to mow his lawn. (laughs) Man, I have done that once. Oh, it was terrible. Yeah. I mean, I've done that a bunch of times. I just did that once where we live now and we have a lot of property. Mm -hmm. And I just remember seeing the people, our neighbors, pulling out lawn chairs just to watch me being like, what is this dude doing? It's like, I have no choice. My lawnmower is broken. No, I need to go ahead and watch this. He's going to die of a heat stroke (laughs) out here. If he goes down, I want to see it. (laughs) (laughs) Over there making bets. But no, all that to I'll say, last. yeah, I do hate, you know, getting people excited at, just to get them into this one deal. But then not actually following through yeah. with the thing. And that's why, like, I it, I think it's so easy, in a sense, in theater to talk about the things you want to do. And then, you know, maybe sometimes it, it seems like you're leading people astray, and then maybe you're not. You just genuinely want to do it, and the opportunity just keeps not arising yeah i mean i'm sure that's the way people felt like for the last year while i kept emailing and being like we still really want to do mockingbird <laughs> yes hold on to your horses here we go um but yeah i mean i i there's there's so many shows that i want to do and i want like it's so hard not to just be like this is what we want to do because then i feel like people will be upset if we don't do those yeah. things or I'll seem that way of being like, oh, they just always talk about these shows they want to do. But then they never actually do it. I think that's why I'm always so afraid of talking about our season with like in any sort of public way that's outside of our circle. Yeah. Because I'm like, oh, people are going to think that we're, you know, that we're just talking about shows that we're not ever actually going to do. 
But you do always preface it with, you know, we were thinking if you were available, we could maybe do this when talking to people. Well, yeah. I mean, if, if I'm looking at, I mean, I feel like whenever you're deciding a season in a smaller community, you have to look at the talent pool that is around you. And there nah, are shoot certain, for the stars. <laughs> I mean, I'm not just going to like, like I would love, I would love to direct the um the musical ragtime <laughs> but i know that i can't do that because i don't have uh i don't have the actors in my community yeah. built in so i'm like well i Yet. can't do it yeah i mean i hope i would hope to be able to do that oh my gosh i would love that so much i would love to do that and parade i would love to do those things but i i just it's just not there we're just not there yet um maybe someday but I'm not just going to like announce that we're auditioning for it without any sort of clue about who would be able to play these massive roles that are very specific types, you know. So I feel like, you know, with this one particular show and I asked these two people because they're already they already can do all of the tricks. Yeah. That I need. And they're awesome. And they're so much fun to work with, which is a whole other thing. I'm like. You know, in a in a community theater setting, I would be, you know, I would I would think more about, you know, if members of the community are coming in, then I I need to cast members of the community. I'm not going to try to precast anything. But if it's for my own production company, like I'm putting up all of the money. Yeah. Then I'm going to do what I want. Exactly. (laughs) I'm going to be like, okay, well, I want to work with these people. This is what I want. This is for my time and my on my dollar. So this is what I want. I don't think that that's bad. No, absolutely not. Am I just arguing with myself? Maybe. I, I think you're thinking of perhaps what we talked about last time, but I don't think anybody would approach and be like, how come, uh, how come you chose to use only these two people and didn't audition true. anyone? Well, I just also like the the precast thing is a little like always sensitive, but I know that we've talked about that in the past too, about just, you know, how scary that can possibly be. But whenever you know that you have somebody that's already perfect, I mean, sure, you can leave yourself open to surprise, but, I mean, I just... Well, it's the same reason people cast, you know, Brad Pitt or Leonardo DiCaprio. It's a bankable thing. It's a bankable thing. I know that I can count on this person to do this thing. Yeah. So that's what I'm going to do. So I just, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I always battle this, you know, don't just... Just because you're super excited doesn't mean that you necessarily have to tell everybody everything. It's the whole thing of just because I'm going through this particular grocery line doesn't mean that I need to try to make this person's day by telling them, you know, all the amazing things in the world. I can just, you know, go through the line like someone else and maybe make their day better by not forcing them to have a really long, small talk conversation with me. Yeah. So um, I don't know. I just that is. That has been one of the things that as I have been growing older, I'm trying really hard to just be like, all right, just not everybody needs to know everything all the time. Like you can't just keep some things to yourself. Yeah, but it it is because we've not done this in so long. I think we're just so excited. Yeah, I'm just want to hit the ground like running. talk about all the things that I want to do and how excited I am about it. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, like the other day I was just I was. I was really wanting to make a post about uh, To Kill a Mockingbird and I wanted to release the poster and do all this stuff and I had made like a new 
little uh, like cover photo thing with our logo and some photos from past shows and that I that I'd like put up online and on the website and I wanted to make some changes and and um, I wanted to release all of that at once and just be like look at all this stuff (laughs) (laughs) instead of being like oh I can do this you know I can separate this out and actually make it something that people will look at instead of like oh that was a play on theater all of a sudden just posted a lot Here's That's a shotgun weird. blast of everything yeah, all at once. Of everything all at once, and then you won't hear from me for again for a long time. So just you know, just trying to like tailor my excitement so yeah. that I'm not just a crazy person. That's that's really where I feel feel like I'm I'm at. But you know, you started this whole thing talking about like doing shows back to back to back. Um yes. for basically the rest of the year, which is something I'm very excited about doing again. Um because well, one, there's more of a. Even though we d- have said in the past, we will never do back to back shows ever <laughs> <Yes>. again. <laughs> but but I'm also really excited to do that to kind of like live in the theater again after being out for yeah. 18 months or so. To just like jump back in and and go for it. Yeah. I yeah I'm excited about that too. I mean, there's there's really no other place you know for for me I can. I can get, you know, tunnel vision and just stay in that zone forever. Mm-hmm. And it is really hard. It's really hard for me to remember things like, you know, you need to eat and you need to sleep and you need to do these other things. Like it doesn't just have to be about theater all the time. It just kind of feels like it's almost like a um, like my whole life is just I've just been doing this. And so my brain and just operates that way first. Yeah. Whereas like now I'm older, I know that it can't. Yeah, <laughs> that I need other things. You know, there are other things that I want to do and that I'm interested in giving my time to. But yeah, it's it's like I have to just force myself to remember those things. It's just kind of interesting. But when you're when you love something and you're passionate about it, it can become a little parasitic. But I think it shows that you still care. Yeah, I mean, it definitely. You know, I I feel like it is very easy in the in our business for it to start to feel like you know like you're the only person that's experiencing this and that you give (laughs) more than anyone has ever given yes you're not recognized for anything that you do and it's just yada 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 and i don't know if it's like that in other like jobs I, i assume that it probably is um but i mean i I'm sure it is. It, theater can be a very thankless job just because so many people don't really understand the depths of how much work goes into telling the story mm-hmm. um, and making sure that you can afford to tell the story. But it is, it, I mean, that is the, that is the thank you. You know, I mean, I'd never want to get to that point where I'm bitter. Like it's, it's yeah. turned from, from like, passion and love of something into bitterness which i think is interesting because it, that can happen so easily oh yeah burnout on people a lot of this you see it like in a regular i say regular workplace but you see it in sort of your blue collar and, and white collar sort of workspaces in that people when they get burnout they just start complaining about every aspect about their jobs right and so like when you ask them hey how's work been and then they unload all of that crap onto you kind of mm-hmm. like you were talking about being in the grocery line there it's just like have you have you considered leaving yeah well maybe that's why right now 
they're having such a hard time getting people to rejoin the workforce. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, it's not a, I don't think it's about money. I think it's about, wait, I've been okay and I'm wanting to hold out for something a little bit better. Yeah. I've seen the other side. It's like, oh, I had time to rest um, and let go of all the chaos that was happening around mm-hmm. me. And reassess some things in my life and it's see what's like important and what's not. You don't want to work with certain people that are mean to you or abuse your time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it's the, I, I feel like it's the same way. I mean, I'm, I don't know. I'm, not that this needs to be political in any sort of way. I just feel like it's like a lot of people are just wanting to say that it's because of the unemployment benefits and that that needs to go away. It's like, well, no, maybe we should just really look at the issue. Yeah. Like it's, probably not the employment unemployment benefits i would say it's the uh, like you know the actual culture of working <laughs> yes. in america you know i i say this and i do mean it sort of like in context but modern day slavery is dead oh yeah no i understand that in in the sense of well i i have to pay these bills cuz i need a car to go to work to also pay this house note to also yeah. keep the lights and the water on and all the utilities and everything. And so in in my just just the way that I kind of frame it, it's like, oh, well, if I could get out of debt, I could have this freedom. Mm-hmm. But then I know when I get out of debt, it's going to be this, I want this other thing too, and then we're right. getting more debt. So, What is that like to think when I get out of debt? What is that like? <laughs> I don't, know, I don't know, actually. I don't know what that is. That's crazy. I know that I have a timeline to get out from underneath certain bills, but... Yeah, yeah, that's that's good for you. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so responsible. Um, so I was... We were talking a little bit earlier, and since we just kind of like... It's going to be impossible for us not to... So I guess I should just... Should have framed this from the beginning... It's going to be really hard for me not to talk about things that are going on with To Kill a Mockingbird. Yes. So I'll probably just start calling it Mockingbird or the show because mm-hmm. that's what we're doing right now. Yeah. Um, and you and I were talking a little bit earlier, and I know for me, uh, we've had a whole episode, I believe, but who really knows, on music before and like the... like composing and the composition of song like in plays and I was working um outside the other day and I was listening to some music and it just like brought me to this part in the play that I just could see it so clearly through song and it just I I always find it so interesting that a that a song can give off the absolute perfect energy for what you're looking for yeah and um but what I, I also think is interesting in, in To Kill a Mockingbird, there's this scene that for some reason I just like, there's a whole play, but every single time that we talk about it, and even when we were talking about restaging it, every time I was thinking about restaging it and the way the set was going to be, I was thinking about it in the way of, well, how is this one moment going to look? Yeah, you've, <laughs> been, you've been sort of dwelling on this one moment Quite from a bit. the beginning. Yeah. Like from the and I think it's because when I read the show, the the like most intense moment, I mean, of course it's not the most intense moment, but I it is a it is an intense moment. And I was kind of thinking about the reasons why. 
It's when Tom Robinson is in the jailhouse overnight and Bob Ewell um, gets a bunch of like basically a mob together and they're going to go and they're going to have some, I, I don't know what you would even call it, like mob justice, I guess. Yeah. And um, Atticus goes and he puts a chair down in front of the, in front of the sheriff's office and he's sitting there and he's waiting for them and he's going to keep them from taking Tom Robinson out so that he can actually get a trial. Mm-hmm. And I think, and then, and then of course scout comes in and she actually is the one that saves the day in a sense by showing these people their humanity when yeah. she actually starts pulling people out of the crowd and talking about who they are saying their names and like their relationships in a sense. And I've just, I find that so interesting. I think because we have seen so much of this type of behavior lately where there is a group of people that, you know, were not necessarily raised to behave this way. Yes. And that if you were to talk to them in a normal day, that they would not behave this way. But it's like they get, like, I don't know, like, just kind of, like, drunk in a way. They forget who they are. And they just kind of fade into this darkness. And I think that's one thing that is interesting to me because I find this direct parallel of being able to be like, yeah, I can see this going on in our country right now where people are just literally jumping on to the bandwagon. Yes. <laughs> um, and maybe they need to think about what they're actually doing and what it means a little bit more. And also just the terror of that situation. I think it's the one time in the show that the town is really being confronted with the issue. You know, the court in the court scene, they're talking all around the issue in a sense. Like it's very formal. Yeah. And this is just something very different. And it's them actually showing their true colors in a way. Mm-hmm. And you've got Atticus at the center and he still like he shows up. This is this is what it is. OK, <laughs> I'm getting there. I promise I'm getting there. So Atticus leaves the house. He doesn't tell anybody what he's doing. Hectate just shows up, tells him this is going on. He leaves. He puts his chair out. He doesn't tell anybody with the stuff that he's getting from the house, like why he's getting the light bulb or any of those other things. He gets the chair. He puts it out in front of the sheriff's office, and he's guarding the entrance and refused to tell his kids what's going on. So Dill, Scout, and Jim all run, and they're going to basically watch what's happening. And so it's almost like he's trying to keep his children innocent in a sense. And then people show up and Atticus is losing. Like the mob is going to take Tom. Yeah. And they're going to, and probably most likely hurt Atticus in the, in the middle of it. And the person that actually saves the day is scout. And so I think it's interesting because in the end, Atticus doesn't save the day either. Yeah. You know, it's like he is doing the right things, but he's not necessarily doing like he should have told the kids. But if he wouldn't have told the if he would have told the kids, they wouldn't have came. Yeah, it's 
I, I kind of want to double back real quick because you were talking about kind of I the said mob, a lot of things. Yeah, I'm sorry to the mob mentality thing, and I kind of want to comment on that. I think it's kind of what you were talking about a little earlier about getting people excited about things. Yeah, and so when you start talking sort of emphatically or passionately or you know however Bobby Ewell might have been talking to these people, right? That these people who know better and have better sense to yeah. do these things suddenly lose all of their um, inner sense. If you yeah, will. it's like that you can make somebody take bits and pieces of a situation and make that make sense to them in a way that they're like, oh, yeah, I agree with this. Yeah, I to- that totally makes sense. We're like, no, you have to look at the whole picture, not just a piece of it. You got to look at the whole thing. Exactly. And, and you also have to check it. Who's telling you this stuff? <laughs> exactly. Bob Ewell from who who, you know, you know, spoiler alert, the entire, you know, town basically turns on him at the end well for what he did and what he said are against him from the beginning exactly because they know who he is you know they talk about in the beginning the last names of people in town and then especially in the they talk about this more in the novel like no whenever scout is in school and miss caroline is getting upset with her because mr cunningham in the front row is doesn't want to take the quarter from her because he doesn't have lunch. And yes. She just can't understand why a kid wouldn't have lunch. And she's like, well, he's a Cunningham. He's not going to take the quarter. He can't pay it back. Yes. And then Scout says, you're shaming him, and she gets upset with Scout and hits her with a ruler. But um, it is it is that thing of, well, he's a Yule. They understand. They know who he is. He's a terrible person. And they still jump on his, his yeah. bandwagon and run after, you know, they... they they join on to his cause. But I do think that, you know, you were just talking about you sort of going back to the end of your point there about how, you know, Atticus stands at the center of this and still doesn't convince the mob or the people. Yeah, he cannot convince the town. And it's such an interesting bit of foreshadowing. Oh, yeah, the whole thing. That's that's I think that's why it keeps popping in my head is that it it shows you every single thing that's going to happen. Yes. And it's still it's also scout figuring it out because she does the same thing in a very similar way towards the end where she's like, Oh, I, I don't understand why people are behaving this way. Like why this is happening. It doesn't make any sense to me. And that's exactly what she's doing in front of the courthouse where she's like, you're not bad people. And you're doing this to my father Mm -hmm. who has helped you. Like, you know who he is. It's almost like she has to wake them up. Yeah. But that's, so true to the, you know, how the entirety of the story plays out and that everyone knows Bob and Mayella are lying. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows this, that, that, that Tom, I mean, they, they even spell it out. Physically, he could not have done exactly what they said happened. Yeah. There's no way to prove, and it's all circumstantial evidence. Yeah, and, and they just, the mob sort of wins. They win because society couldn't have dealt with exactly the with the loss of that yes like if if they would have found him not guilty society would not have been able to deal it's like the infrastructure of make would have fallen and you know here's what's i know it's not you know this big political thing or anything but but you know thinking about it in terms of how celebratory everyone was when the oj simpson trial uh verdict came mm-hmm. in and i think that that shows you that even to the 90s that it was still very relevant yeah yeah i mean it's yeah i i i I just i don't know i think that all of that is why i keep 
jumping into that scene. Like mm-hmm. for, for some reason in my mind, it's the most important scene yeah. in the play. Well, it's the physical embodiment of everything we're about to let play out. Afterwards. I think it's also just such a good way to set up what is about like to get the audience into a headspace that shows them like, oh my gosh, there is no way. Yeah. There's no way. Like they're up against all of this stuff, which I think is more about is more about what this story is. Maybe that's what it is. I'm trying to figure out what exactly is the thing in this story, the big overarching theme that I'm like, this is why we tell the story. This is what mm-hmm. it's about. Because in the end, he doesn't win and there's it's not a happy ending. Yeah. So I think that it's, you know, Atticus says that even though you know that you're licked a thousand times before you try doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. It's mm-hmm. like something like that. It's like you're going to lose the uphill battle, you're but gonna, it doesn't mean you shouldn't. Just because you know you're going to lose doesn't yeah. mean that you shouldn't try. Yeah. And um, And I think that's what it is. I think that's what it's about. Just because we know that there are things that are broken in our society doesn't mean that we shouldn't at least try to fix it, even though if we know that we're going to lose because sometimes that effort leads into the bigger victory later mm-hmm. on. It's those smaller, smaller efforts, which we kind of, I think we've talked about that a little bit, but I think that might be what this show is for me. Yeah. Is it, the, at least the effort. And I think that's why this scene is so important to me is showing everybody in their, in their place. And then also being able to get the audience in the same mindset as we are to mm-hmm. bring them, to get them onto our team because they've seen, I mean, it is one of the most shocking things for me in the first page of this show. Whenever the little kids, you know, you see this, like looks like a perfect little town. Yeah. You don't think about the fact that Calpurnia, who's a black woman is taking care of the little white girl on stage. You just like see that and you're like, Oh look, everybody, this looks so nice. Mm-hmm. And then you have kids run, past and they like scream the n-word out loud and it just like is so jarring because it's not anything that you would expect yeah but it immediately sets the tone for like oh my god this is this is where we are yeah it's not as happy as it looks and that's one of the things you know we were talking about should we possibly have this at this other theater versus this black box intimate theater? Yeah. And that's why I think I've been such a champion of the black box. Yeah. Despite, you know, that's where I got a lot of my training and what I prefer. But I love that moment at the very beginning because it everyone's kind of like, oh, hey, look, we're in the South. We're telling this story that we all love. But it also mm-hmm. makes everyone perk up immediately. I think that it's easy for people to just think about the show and think, oh, this is just this great American classic Mm -hmm. novel about life in the South, and and it takes place on this trial. But if you went up and actually just talked to, you know, random people on the street and asked them about it, I bet they they could tell you, like, there's a little girl, her dad's a lawyer, and there's a trial. And that's about it. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that it is going to be so intense whenever people are in that room and it is a small space for them to actually remember, like, you know, we can romanticize the past in the South and Mm -hmm. think of it as like this, you know, like really beautiful, like simpler time, but it was really only beautiful and simple for some people. Yeah. Not for everybody. 
which is why another thing I think that it's so important for Calpurnia to be present in the beginning whenever that happens so that you get Scout's reaction and Calpurnia's reaction because the audience will immediately look to Calpurnia. Yeah. To see how they're supposed to feel about that. Mm. I just, I, I'm just, I'm just ready to go. I'm ready to make yes. it happen. But I am like, after hearing that one song and then figuring out how to like work that into the play, I just see that moment so clearly. Like you were talking to me last time about directing with a vision. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this right. Is probably what it is. I'm like, <laughs> I do think it is more like of a cinematic view of it in a sense where I have this idea of how to make all of that work. But I also enjoy like in that mob scene to try to make it to where the audience feels like they are the ones that are in the mob. Yeah. I think that is really important. So then in a sense, while you're watching it, you, you almost feel shame. Yeah. Because I think that's the only way that people immediately jump on board with Tom is to be like, Oh my gosh, this town, like to try to get the audience to go through the journey faster than obviously like, in a minute that took, you know, people in the South, well, it's still taking people in the South, you know, years and years and years, mm-hmm. over 50 years to get to here. But anyway, I'm just, I'm, I'm excited about that and I hope that it works because, you know, it also, this, all of this is in my mind, so it just might totally flop. <laughs> no, no, I think everything that you're saying, like, uh, that you've told me on how you want it to play out, like, I can picture it so clearly and it is so powerful is is yeah like not just the way i want people to feel about it but i want them to feel uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and i don't you know i've said this before i don't ever want especially with this show in particular and i think it's because we're so passionate about it i don't want anyone to feel indifferent yeah you want people to leave changed in some sort of way Mm -hmm. at least at least thinking about something a little bit different yes i think that it is an amazing tool i think it i think that this show offers an amazing opportunity for people in our community to look at things from through a different lens which is the thing that you want the yeah. thing that you want with every show it's just this one is super good kind of like what we were talking about you know with last time about art stirring you and making mm-hmm. you feel things and e- e- if it's uncomfortable then it's uncomfortable yeah and well it's almost like i don't mind doing a show like this last last time um, I actually got a little bit of hate mail not mm-hmm. too long ago, and that could that could come across of making you feel like really it, it could it could destroy you or it could make you think yeah you know what I'm doing something that's obviously making people think yes and making people feel a certain way. Of course, you don't want people to always feel hatred towards you or annoyance. <laughs> But at least you are causing a feeling, and that's kind of how I made sense of it. I was like, you know, when we set, when we sought out to do this, I said that we want people to leave the theater different in some kind of way than whenever they came in. And if they're leaving it angry because they didn't like something that we have done or like a particular opinion that they, they, we expressed, at least they are feeling something. Yeah, And then maybe they're actually going to... Like, I would hope that they would look at themselves and be like, wait, why is this actually bothering me? Right. <laughs> Which they probably won't. But no, I, you no, would hope that they not. would be like, why does this bother me? It really shouldn't. But why does it? Why does it? But yeah, on the other side of that, though, you can't let that stuff have power over you. 
and make you like change the way that you would run your operation for the next time? No. I mean, I, I think that you have to look at the good and how much it outweighs the bad. I mean, you're never going to, in any, in any type of service industry, which is really what theater is, um, when you're dealing with the public, you're never going to make everybody 100% happy, which is one reason why I never go into politics. Mm, yeah. I'm just like, I would make me so mad. Yes. I would not be able to handle it. But <laughs> I mean, even still, it is it's just a, a nature of the beast. Like people are going to be upset with you. People are going to love you. People are going to hate you. Oh, it's yes. You have to reconcile. Like one of the it, it, it is, you know, I understand that especially when I do comedy, that I'm not everyone's brand of comedy and that's OK. And it took a long time for me to to recognize and understand that, like, okay, you know what? The way that I do it is maybe more akin to the Jerry Lewis, Buster Keaton type of stuff that I really love and enjoy. Mm -hmm. And it's a little maybe more cartoony than it is, like, grounded in some some ways. But it's what I... But that doesn't mean that you couldn't yeah, do that. It's yeah. just all about what the situation calls for. Exactly. And, and it's like, there are subtle ways to do comedy and stuff like that, but I also idolize those people and i would love to to yeah not that i could they were both you know deceased now but it would like to to call myself one of their peers at some point in my life would be like <laughs> really cool which would which would come when i'm dead but you know all that well, to you say, know like, if you die penniless exactly <laughs> then you pretty much be able to do that because all those guys died penniless and alone not jerry lewis um well, he was close, but no, he didn't. But all that to say, like, you can't Buster let other... Did. Yeah, you can't let other people's opinions color how you do things and understand that I'm not everyone's cup of tea, and that's okay. No, but I'm... You know, it's it's nice to be challenged every once in a while and being like, all right, you're upset about this. That's cool. I'm going to look at why you're upset, and if why you're upset, I find some sort of validity to it after I do my own little investigation of the Well, matter, that's fair, yes, yes. Then then I can make a change. But if I find that you're upset and you're upset for the reasons why I think you, you know, <laughs> shouldn't be upset. Yes. But, you know, <laughs> if you're upset about it, then I feel like I'm probably doing something right. Because a lot of people don't like to have their way of life or their, you know, the way that they do things challenged. Oh, 100%. And yeah. so whenever you start to do that, it almost makes people feel like, oh, wait, so you're saying that I've been living life wrong for mm -hmm. so long that I'm a bad person? You're not a bad person. You just need to change. If you don't change and you know the information and what you're doing is wrong, then you're a bad person. Yeah. <laughs> but people's, people's uh, capability to stay the same even in the face of, you know, knowing that what they're the way that they're living their life is wrong is always interesting to me. That is what I think excites me the most about Mockingbird mm -hmm. is that we're challenging these worldviews and these things that people have held on to for so long. And I'm just very excited to see that change happen one way or the other. Yeah. I mean, especially because I find that in the South or where we live, especially a lot of people have a lot of silent prejudices. Yes. And I am that that is probably another reason why this mob thing <laughs> is so I hear yeah, I'm still talking about it. This mob thing is a little bit more uh like constantly on my mind about finding a way for the audience to feel like they are a part of it because a lot of the people in the audience possibly would be. Yeah. So 
I, I'm just like, how do I how do I make this happen? But then also show them that this type of behavior is so abhorrent and should have never happened in any world. Yeah. I don't know. I think that it is kind of interesting to say out loud, I want my audience to feel shame. (laughs) 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 Feel shame and be uncomfortable. Um, But I do. That's what I want. Yes. Mm. Hey, uh, I'm like super hungry. Dude, that she, your wife is cooking. immediately smell it. Yes, and it somehow just immediately hit through the door. (laughs) People are going to get really tired of us always ending and being like, we are going to eat, but they're going to make it. It's going to make a lot more sense when we do our next show. And they're like, did you see how much weight they gained? (laughs) They are huge. Those are not the same costumes from Tuna that they're doing at Tuna Christmas. That's great. (laughs) We got everything resized. Like, we're going to be, we're going to be up a size. Yep. Well, hey, that is Christophanopoulos. And that was Big Kahuna. Why don't you try it one more time? <laughs> it's like, what are you doing with that microphone? <laughs>